You're listening to an episode of a Law Review Squared, the Law Review Review. It is 8 p.m. on Thursday, June 10th, 2021. We have a special guest today, visiting Professor Evan Burnick from Georgetown, who will be moving to Northern Illinois University in the fall. He is also the Executive Director of the Center for Constitutional Law at Georgetown. I'm Tony Fernando, and uh, our regular host. And while supplies last, you can still get a free Law Review Squared sticker by sending your mailing address to lexclava at gmail.com. That's L-E-X-C-L-A-V-A at gmail.com. We'll ship anywhere, even if you're overseas. Reminder that the opinions here, those of the panelists, do not represent the view of Penn State Dickinson Law, panelists, present, former, future employers, or any other entity. Contents of this recording do not constitute legal advice. So, uh, Professor Bernick, the article we're discussing this week, and it had come to my attention via Twitter, is entitled Eliminating Constitutional Law. Um, in most episodes of the podcast, we've discussed law as it is, or um, the implications of a case or a case interpretation. But here we're taking a step further back and discussing theory about law, and the law is an abstract thing rather than collection of statutes and cases. We know we have some non-lawyers in our audience. Uh, could you briefly explain uh, what this article, Eliminating uh, Constitutional Law, is about? Sure. Thanks again for inviting me, Tony. I'm really glad to be here. So suppose you're a judge, you're an ad- legislator, you're an agency official, you wield state power. You want to stay within the Constitution's bounds. You need to have some theory or framework that can tell you how to do that. That theory might be originalism, which prioritizes the Constitution's original meaning. It might be common law constitutionalism, which says you should stick close to doctrines that are articulated by the Supreme Court. Or it might be Dworkinism, which says you should make decisions in accordance with moral principles that fit and justify our legal traditions. Why would you choose one of those theories rather than the other? Well, in recent years, scholars have argued that in order to make constitutional decision makers, you need a general theory of what law is, of what norms in any society are legal norms. And that what law generally is tells you what you ought to do under our constitution. So this is the stuff of jurisprudence and the argumentative terrain is divided between positivists and natural lawyers. Positivists say all law is generated by authoritative sources. Those sources are fixed by the practice of public officials. Law doesn't need to be moral. Evil law is possible. Natural lawyers say that moral considerations are always relevant to identifying the content of the law and that a central case of law will capture certain moral goods. Now, some positivist originalists argue that public officials regard the original constitution as an authoritative source of law, and so public officials ought to follow originalism. Natural law originalists argue that the original constitution is a central case of law, and we really ought to follow originalism. And finally, natural law Dworkinians say that law just is what it is morally best to do in legal settings, and that we need a form of Dworkinism to identify that best decision. And my paper says no, 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 no. Constitutional decision makers don't need a theory of law to choose a constitutional theory. Indeed, no theory of law can underwrite the choice of a constitutional theory. The choice between constitutional theories has to be a moral decision. And under any of these theories of law, whether positivist or natural, it turns out that whether something is law really carries no independent moral weight. So I argue that legality ought to be eliminated from consideration in choosing a constitutional methodology I then go on to consider whether theories of law can really ever play any useful role in constitutional decision-making. I think they might be able to, but it's also quite possible that they can't and that we shouldn't think or talk in terms of constitutional law at all. 
Is this something that a practicing attorney or, or a sitting judge is going to be considering as they're making their decision-making? Or uh, do these theories of laws kind of work in the abstract, um, only in the broader discussion of, uh, of what law is supposed to be doing? Right. So, I mean, this is a general question about the philosophy of law, right? Why are we here? It's not obvious that any public official needs a theory of law in order to make a constitutional decision. I clerked for a judge. I wrote bench memos. I drafted opinions. None of them make any reference to a theory of law. We had theories of how to interpret statutes and how to interpret the Constitution. We had theories of adjudication. It was enough to know that we ought to follow the Constitution and that whatever the Constitution says is law, regardless of whether the Constitution measures up to the best theory of law. And that experience was actually formative in thinking about the question of whether we can do without law, because in practice, I actually did. And I think that a lot of practicing attorneys and public officials more generally who have recourse to legal materials and know how to make their way through them on an ongoing basis don't necessarily need a general theory of law in order to figure out that certain materials are authoritative and relevant to the institutional roles that they occupy and the space that they need to navigate. And that we can do very well without a lot of the time. That doesn't mean that general theories of law are totally irrelevant. They can help us identify certain materials that are particularly important in our reasoning, but it does mean that we need to think very seriously about the possibility that, um, particularly in our very fragmented institutional landscape in which the law facing a prosecutor is different in many respects and the considerations that go into their decisions are different in many respects from the law that informs a police officer's activity, which is very different from the law that informs a public defender's activity. It's a complicated institutional landscape of fragmented decision-making. And um, my paper is a preliminary effort to really broach that question of whether we actually need a general theory of law to navigate that landscape. So I, I, I will say that one of the reasons I was interested in your paper um, is we had just covered uh, Mueller versus Oregon in constitutional law, and um, you know we're finishing up our, our one L year here. Uh, this was one of the f uh, foundational cases, and in that particular case, uh, the man who would eventually be Supreme Court Justice Brandeis submitted a brief that included a bunch of scientific papers and so on. Um, the court accepted that information as being authoritative um, and informed the decision that uh, came down from Justice Brewer. That decision said it was okay to discriminate on sex because females are um, essentially lesser than men in a work context. And I ended up having this sort of epistemological crisis because I, I am a trained scientist. We go into regulatory uh, areas and courts all the time saying, please use the best available science. But in 1908, this was the best available science. Um, and the idea that they had done this in 1908 and came up with a patently unjust conclusion mm -hmm. uh, led me to sort of wonder about whether there was a possibility that uh, there was a, a, a broader theory of the law in general. And then I ran into this paper where you seem to be starting to discuss it, albeit under different um, uh, under different circumstances. And that was very comforting because we don't talk in law school about 
the broader theories of natural law. That's more of a philosophy <laughs> uh, question. There was a section where you talked about methodological choices carrying moral weight and that they must be morally justified. Can you expand on that? Um, it is obvious how outcomes can vary if judges use different methods or interpretational theories, but assuming ends don't justify means shouldn't we be doing more than just a consideration of outcomes? Right. So it might be the case that knowing what one's doing helps one get to just results. If I don't know how to play chess, I mean, really know how to play chess, I'm not going to fare well in a chess tournament. But just results might not be the most important thing. You know, legal rules that authoritatively settle contested morally salient questions will always produce some unjust results but you might get more on uh, justice overall by following rules rather than making all things considered judgments in every case. And of course, moral consequentialism might be wrong. So if you're a virtue ethicist, you think that the particular moral excellence of a judge consists in part in following a framework that tracks whatever the law is, even if the law is sometimes unjust, then judges shouldn't prioritize just results. It morally matters more whether a judge is following the law than that they are producing just results. So the suggestion here is not that the constitutional choice that you make needs to be a consequentialist choice, but it does say that the choice that you make needs to be um, consistent with morality broadly understood as a code of conduct that specifies what people ought all things considered to do and how that's cashed out in any given case or how we think about the issue should be framed with reference to what we think the appropriate code of conduct actually is that should govern official behavior, either in general or in particular cases. The question of what the law is, is not something that I argue really uh, shifts the balance of moral reasons in favor of doing anything on anyone's theory of morality, with the possible exception that uh, we can get into of a situation where one is morally bound to follow a promise that one makes, one makes a promise to follow the law, then the law can provide um, the instructions that you need in order to discharge your moral obligations. But that's because of the promise. I mean, if you had promised to follow something that turned out not to be law, you would be equally bound as a consequence of making that promise. And the law just happens to provide the instruction manual in this case. One argument for natural law originalism was that the Constitution, as written, was reasonably just. Um, but the original Constitution was a compromise failing, uh, following the failure of the Articles of Confederation. And, in fact, many would recognize the original Constitution as manifestly unjust. Things like the Three-Fifth Compromise, restriction of the franchise, and, and, and so on. Does a judge have a moral imperative to find another source of natural law if they are a natural law? judge? Um, and if so, under our American system, can there be a source of moral authority other than common law? Right. So I'm actually not aware of any systematic effort to demonstrate that the original Constitution, uh, the 1788 Constitution, was reasonably just. And I very much doubt that such an effort would succeed for the reasons that you've articulated just now, as well as for other ones. But no originalist in good standing denies that it is the amended constitution that binds us. And the moral case for the reasonable justice of the amended constitution does strike me as much more promising. But, I mean, I have to add at this point that the moral case doesn't actually turn upon whether the natural lawyer's theory of law is correct. So 
suppose the best theory of law holds that law needs to have moral elements X, Y, Z. And suppose that the amended constitution has moral elements X and Y, but not Z. And suppose it's just as reasonably just as the natural law originalists say. So you have a reasonably just constitution that is not law. Shouldn't you still follow it? I think the answer has to be yes. Now, what if the original constitution isn't reasonably just? Natural lawyers who follow the lead of John Finnis will tell you that not reasonably just law is still law. You're just not obliged to follow it. If it makes moral sense to follow it on a given occasion, then that's what it does. There is, however, a more radical strand of the natural law tradition that takes St. Augustine quite literally. Unjust law is no law. You may be obliged not to follow unjust enactments. Either way you go, the question of whether you are morally obliged to follow the Constitution in its original or its amended form um, with an eye to doing that which is reasonably just turns upon the alternatives that you have. And it may be the case that even an imperfectly just positive, positive constitution is better than your common law alternative, even if both of them are really suboptimal. And that's a, that's a challenge for natural lawyers to, to deal with. The value of rules versus standards, the trade-off between the common law and positive law is, is a familiar one. And it's one that the answer to, I don't think, can be dictated by um, your theory of, of natural law. So on a practical basis, when we're talking about constitutional decision makers, and this would be uh, judges who are deciding on things like motions to suppress under the Fourth Amendment or, or people who are making decisions based on, on the Constitution, do, do they have the authority to decide to disobey something that they think is unjust? So it's a very difficult question. Uh, few legal philosophers think that any obligation to follow the law is absolute. I happen to not think that there's any general obligation to follow the law, but I do think that there may in specific circumstances be an obligation to resist the operation of extremely unjust laws that would apply to judges and other public officials. So Paul Butler, um, who's my colleague at Georgetown, has argued that judges are actually obliged to lie about the law and decline to follow it for the sake of morality in cases where following it would violate what are called jus corbin norms fundamental principles of international law from which states are not prepared, uh, permitted to depart. I think that a public official who is called to give effect to the kind of extremely unjust law that Butler is, is talking about is obliged to determine how best to resist the evil associated with it. That doesn't mean disobey it necessarily. It might be that there's no way to mitigate the evil that would not produce greater evils. But there's an obligation of resistance to evil, and we should adopt a presumption in favor of disobeying extremely unjust laws, because it's very easy to come up with self-serving reasons why actually disobedience would do more harm than good. On the issue of responsibility to resist conditions of injustice, even in generally legitimate states, there's a great book called uh, by Candace Delmas called A Duty to Resist When Disobedience Should Be Uncivil, that I highly recommend. You posit different forms of eliminativism, which either deny that the law exists as an abstract entity or that the law exists but is so poisoned conceptually as to have little meaning. At the end of the day, however, the constitutional decision maker has to make some kind of decision, whether he's going to follow the law or not, um, or, or to rule in one side or the other. How does uh, he or she do so in an eliminativist framework? 
So suppose I'm a strong eliminativist. Not only don't I believe that legality is morally relevant, I don't think that there is such a thing as constitutional law. I might still think that the contemporary meaning of the constitutional text as glossed by Supreme Court decisions is reasonably just and that following it will produce morally better results than doing anything else. I also think that most statutes that are enacted in conformity with Supreme Court decisions are reasonably just and prioritizing their purpose in statutory interpretation will produce morally better results than doing anything else. I don't need a theory of law and I don't actually need law to act on either of those beliefs. I just need theories of common law constitutionalism and purposivism. So an eliminativist might do all the things that officials currently do in terms of consulting the same sources, look at judicial opinions, statutes, regulations, and they might rank some materials above others. They just won't privilege something because they've made an initial determination that it's law. All the reasons that they think are relevant in the setting of their decision will be taken into account. Those reasons may be few, they may be many. Eliminativism doesn't say, morality does. This almost sounds like a distinction around the difference between Protestantism and Catholicism at the time of the Reformation, where you're either accepting something as authoritative or the decision maker has to make their own determination as to what is moral and therefore what is appropriate. Is that... No, that's that's a that's a compelling analogy. Or it's uh, the other distinction that you could draw is between uh, rule and act consequentialism. Um, the idea that it might all things be con uh, considered be better to um, spread out your decision making over the course or your theory of decision making over the course of many different decisions because it will actually produce overall better results than if you take into account everything that you ought to do in every individual case. And again, I don't think that's a question that, like if you're an eliminativist, you are not obliged to be an act consequentialist or an act utilitarian or obliged to follow any particular theory of morality. You could be a virtue ethicist. It's, it depends upon your perception of what you ought all morally think, all things morally considered to do. Um, and uh, that's a, uh, that's a, that's a judgment call, and that's, again, just, it doesn't mean that you don't care about Supreme Court decisions. It doesn't mean you don't care about statutes. It doesn't matter, mean that you don't care about your institutional role as a member of the judiciary or a legislator or anything like that. It just means that you don't assign the label law to certain things, focus only on those things, and neglect everything else. Um, judicial decision-making is sometimes described in law school classes as figuring out what result you want. Hopefully it's the just and moral result and then finding the precedents that justify reaching that result. Is that a form, maybe a weak form of one-step hedgehog Dworkinism or is that overly cynical? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So Dworkin is, is really hard to parse. Um, his theory of law is, it's a theory of analytic jurisprudence. He, tries to describe what the law is. And he claimed that it was a social fact that public officials rely upon moral principles that fit prior legal materials in making decisions. Late in his career, this is Hedgehog Dworkin, he made explicit something that was really always implicit in his writings. Law is a, is a branch of morality. Um, there's no fundamental distinction between legal reasons and moral reasons. They just happen to take place in certain sets. But it doesn't follow that one begins with the moral principles and then looks around for legal materials that justify them. 
Dworkin's principles are moral entities that are not constituted by legal materials, but have to fit them. You can't just pick the best moral principle you can think of and then cast about for support for it. That would actually be immoral, according to Dworkin. Now, a legal realist might say that this just isn't how judges make decisions and that arguing that they should is kind of like yelling at a boulder and telling it to move. Judges just respond to facts on the basis of their moral intuitions and social experiences, and that's, that's the law. There's no right answer to what the law requires. When judges say that the law uniquely requires X, that's, that's mystification. They're, they're, making, they're making things up and dressing them up as law when they are in fact not. So if realism is true, Dworkinism is false. But if either of them is true, there really is only one step in legal decision-making. And that's, I think, what you're capturing here. You don't figure out what the law is and then decide what to do about it. The law just is what you do, that's realism, or you conclude that, or what you conclude that morality requires in the circumstances, that's Dworkinism. Um, if we don't have constitutional law, we're kind of stuck in this one system world and how we navigate it, whether with rules, standards, or some mix of methods, ought to be based on some theory of decision-making that tracks some theory of morality. That's basically what I argue. Uh, shifting gears a little bit. So, uh, I, I did see this originally on Twitter. It was a, I think, a working essay at the time. And then you Twittered basically an offer to any law journal to take this and publish it rather than submitting it to law journals. And eventually you did uh, place it at, with, I think, uh, with the uh, South Dakota Law Review. Mm-hmm. Um, now, other professors have done this. I've, I've seen Brian Fry do this. Is uh, this going to become the new way to submit law review articles? I sure hope so. And then it disrupts uh, law review hegemony that seems to be concentrated only on a few schools. Um, I do have to say that Brian Fry uh, was a semi-source of inspiration. I've seen him do it. Um, I noticed that uh, it happens pretty quickly, and I thought I might give it a try. Um, This is a preliminary sketch of an idea that I plan to develop over the course of other articles. Um, I figure that now that it's out into the world and it's getting a positive response, people might be interested in it. So I just did what I did. And within a half hour, I had an offer and I was glad to receive it. And I'm looking forward to working with the editors of the South Dakota Law Review. And with that, we're about out of time. Uh, thanks again to our guest, Professor Burnick. And a uh, reminder, you can find the link to the article discussed by going to lawreviewsquared.com and looking at the episode notes. Let us know what topics you'd like us to consider by twittering suggestions to at Squared Law. Please like, follow, subscribe, or give us a rating wherever you found this podcast. If you're a law student and want to join a panel, get in contact by any method. Audio post-processing by Muhammad Salim. Series producer is Tony Fernando. Podcast adjourned.